This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus and the Gospel of Matthew. From Exodus chapter 20, you shall not murder. And from Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It's good to be here with you all this morning. It's been, uh, I think, three weeks since I've been up here to preach, and I'm excited to be back up here and getting to share the word of God with you. So we are going to continue in our series on the Ten Commandments. So we have the Sixth Commandment today. And I think uh, this is one of those commandments where if you read the first part here, uh, don't murder, you think, got it. No problem. Like this one I can do. I think I can, I can keep that in mind. Then you read uh, Jesus, Jesus' exposition or, or expounding on the heart of this commandment. And you get a little more nervous. A little more nervous. You think, ah, that, is, that seems a little more challenging to me. Uh, the way I've been thinking about the commandments and the way they function in our lives, it's reminded me of uh, basketball, right? Or really any sport. But for me, I'm from Indiana, so basketball is a big thing in Indiana. I grew up as an IU fan, uh, Indiana University. That's who they are. And I know they're not that big of a deal here. Uh, the Big Ten, man, who cares? So um, it's Indiana University, and they were good at basketball, right? They had a coach, his name was Bob Knight. And uh, when I grew up, it was fun. But I never really was into the NBA. I, you know, I know we had the Pacers, the Indiana Pacers, and we had Reggie Miller and I don't even know who else we had, but we had Reggie Miller. I just didn't pay much attention. Until the last few years, I've been really intrigued by the NBA. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with my nephew, uh, who is 11. He loves basketball. He's, he's good at basketball. He plays basketball all the time. He's like probably a lot of other 11-year-old, uh, 11-year-olds who love sports. He can just rattle off the latest trades, the stats, who's got this, who's got that, how many MVPs. It's quite extraordinary. So from his passion, it sort of rubbed off on me. So the past few years, probably four years or so, I've come to much more appreciate the NBA, the athleticism, the beauty of the game, uh, watching um, the, the skill and the talent. It really is quite extraordinary. And I've been to a couple of games here, uh, and of course it was more so the other team uh, than anything else, but uh, I understand. I went to see the Golden State game, and I know some of you were there too, and it was fantastic. It's, it's the beauty that happens on the court in the NBA. Ultimately, that's that's won me over in the sport. And I was thinking about the fact that you have this, uh, these, these lines or the out-of-bounds lines, and, and it, you can't go outside of that, right? You understand that. And these are the rules. Every game has them. But you think about these boundaries create such beauty on the inside. And there are other rules too, right? Like you can't just run with the ball without dribbling. I mean, there are other rules. But I was particularly thinking about uh, the, the baseline, the, the out-of-bounds line. Now, 
in a sense, because we're so enamored by the beauty of the game when it's played well, we kind of forget about the out-of-bounds lines. It's not really that big of a deal until someone crosses over them. But I don't think any of us would say the point, like if I keep, if I keep the ball in bounds, then I get the point of the game, right? Like I'm doing well if I just keep it in bounds. No, we actually know the point of the game is to score, right? The point of the game is to put the ball in the basket. But you do that by staying inside the bounds, right? And I think the commandments, particularly the ones coming up, uh, this is very true about them, right? We could look at this commandment and we could, we could mistakenly think that the point of this commandment is not to kill people. That's the baseline. You gotta stay inside those bounds, but there's a lot of beauty in, in what the commandment is actually requiring of us. There's a lot of beauty. And we could mistake the sixth commandment, the point of it, to be about death or about killing. But that's not the point of the sixth commandment. The point of the sixth commandment is actually life. That's the real point. So the sixth commandment teaches us that both life and death of our neighbors and of ourselves belongs to God. That's the point of the sixth commandment. But it's really important commandment because we all have this proclivity to live as though we were the owners of our own life rather than the stewards of our own life. And if we live like we're the owners of our own life, sometimes we many times live at best apathetically towards others' lives rather than loving them as neighbors, which is what the Bible tells us to do. And so this commandment is about life and death, and it shows us that life and death are matters that belong ultimately to God. Now, there are many other very important ethical implications to the sixth commandment. When you think about ethics, now you need to know the 10 commandments are the basis of all Christian ethics, okay? Those with the 10 commandments, it's been like that in the church for a long time, since the beginning. But, there are some things, okay, then that are directly related to the sixth commandment that I'm not gonna talk about this morning directly, okay? But it doesn't mean that they're not dear to my heart. That is to say that I don't care deeply about them. So I'm not gonna directly talk about abortion, although it is directly an implication of this commandment. I'm not gonna talk about war or suicide or physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia or capital punishment, although all of those things are directly related to this commandment. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to, in our brief time together, lay the basic framework that we have to understand before we can engage those questions. And we ought to be able to engage those questions. We ought to long to engage those questions. But this morning, I'm gonna back us up or take us uh, uh, at a higher level, maybe, you could say, and lay the groundwork. So I'm mixing metaphors all over the place. But uh, if Paul can do it, I can do it. So that's what... That's what we're doing today. And I wanna do that by pulling out two aspects of the sixth commandment. All right, and the first one is this. Uh, the sixth commandment requires the protection of life. All right, that, that's what we see. Some of you may have memorized the KJV, the King James version of this, and how would that go? Thou shall not kill, right? And the ESV, as we read this morning, says uh, you shall not murder. So what's going on here? I think in general, briefly, um, the word kill is, is more general, okay, than, than the word 
murder, but it, both words don't quite encompass everything that's happening when we read, for example, that there are certain, uh, rec- there are certain provisions for manslaying, or what we would call manslaughter, accidental killing, unintentional killing. And so what we see here is that uh, the word is a little broader than murder because it's used of cases like manslaying, right? We wouldn't call that murder. In our day and age, we'd call that manslaughter, and there would be different retribution for that. Um, But really, what this word is trying to communicate is the unlawful killing of another person, right? The unlawful taking of life. So whether kill or murder, and you've heard the feeder beliefs of saying, well, thou shalt not kill, therefore you shall not go to war, that type of thing. It's like, well, there's a whole... There's a whole history of literature written on that, but I at least want to say that the main, whatever word you use here, kill, murder, the point is the unlawful taking of life, okay? When there's no, no right to take that life, no provision, okay? And that would, it should raise the question, why can't we simply kill somebody? I mean, why is that? I mean, if someone says, why shouldn't we kill, would you say, well, it's just against societal norms, right? I mean, Somehow, some way, we have this social contract where we think it's better, it goes better for you, it goes better for me if we decide, hey, we're not gonna kill each other and we're gonna make that into a law. And so it's really merely a social contract, right? It's socially constructed morality where at some point, it might, we might get to a point where we think it's better to have certain uh, options of killing people. Is that possible? I don't know. Well, right now it's not. So is that the only reason why we can't kill somebody? Because society says we can't, we might break the law and go to jail? Is it because of evolutionary advantage? For some reason, we've evolved in such a way where, where we don't think it's a good idea to kill other people and somehow that's become an advantage to us and the very fact that we get disturbed if someone kills us or tries to kill us is because uh, we've evolved that way. And so there must be some type of evolutionary advantage. Is that the reason why we can't kill people? You just assume it's not a good idea. Well, uh, this morning, the Bible says at least two things about this, of why we can't kill people, okay? And we need to protect life. And the first one would be is because God owns you, and he owns everybody, all right? Uh, So to unlawfully take someone's life would be to take sovereignty over their life. It would be to say that you have the right to determine their life, as though you own that person, or as though they are under your jurisdiction, Right? To claim the right to take someone's life is to claim ownership over that thing. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everyone, everything is the Lord's. He owns it. Right? This means that you and I will be held accountable for how we treat everyone that we come in contact with. Because they're God's. Right, we know, we know uh, they're not gods, by the way. They are gods. That is to say that uh, he owns them. When I said that, I thought, they're not gods. We, we, um, I remember, this was a couple years ago. Livy, my oldest daughter, was probably three years old. And we went every other year. We go to this particular um, distant relative, uh, their house for, for breakfast early on Christmas morning when we're, when we're in town. And we went, and she has this hobby of building these very um, precious uh, baby dolls, and so the body is cloth, but the feet, the hands, and the head are like ceramic, and so she builds these, and there was like 
I don't know. Uh, it felt like a minute, and Livy was gone. I mean, she was at that age where she was sneaky. She was fast. She was gone, like many of our kids, right after the service. They'll be like, where did they go? I don't even know where they went. They were right here. She was like that. So she was gone. And we thought, where is she? And we go upstairs, and she's just standing over this doll that's laying on the floor with the head is cracked. I'm thinking, oh, oh no. And uh, what it, she was playing with the doll and she was about to bring it down to us and she accidentally dropped it because it was a little top heavy with the head and just kind of flipped out of her hands and, and cracked on the floor. And I remember feeling horrible and I felt this responsibility. It wasn't ultimately that big of a deal, but I felt this responsibility because I knew that it was my responsibility in someone else's house with all of their stuff to treat their stuff in a certain way, right? Like if you're house sitting, for example, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna look and be like, I bet I could make a lot of money on eBay if I sold that thing. You start selling things in their house. But you don't do that. That's not what you do. Why? Because you don't own it. You don't own it. And so when you come into contact with other things that people own, you have a sort of respect for it. And so therefore, when we come into contact with any person, whether it's the grocery checkout person, the Uber driver, the person who sits next to you on the plane, the TSA agent, that was hard to write, the Trump supporter, the Clinton supporter, the third party supporter, right? There's more, this is more, okay, by the way, this is more than a plea to be nice. Like, hey, Christians, be nice. Everyone's being mean to each other. You should be nice. It's, it's way more than that. It's speaking, which we'll get to even more in a minute, to the value of what God has made, okay? God owns it and he made it. And so it's a recognition that human life is sacred because it's owned by God and we are expected and held accountable to respecting it, okay? And this is also, by the way, true of your own life. You do not own your life, okay? You don't own it. You're a steward of it. Now, the first thing is a little easier for us, even in our society. It's like, yeah, that's fine. I know I shouldn't kill people and I should let them believe what they believe and do what they do, but when it comes to my own life, I mean, it's modern day heresy to say that I'm not ultimately in charge of my life, all right? Is it not? And whatever you do today, whatever you decide to do when you go to college and whatever you decide to do, I mean, you're in charge, right? You're in charge, you decide. You decide what's, what's happening. That's not what the Bible says. Right, and the modern day logic goes something like this. Since I am my own, I can do what I want and live how I want as long as I don't hurt anyone else. Right, that's the main, that's I think the only moral circuitry that people have nowadays is as long as I don't hurt you and there's, you're consenting to one another in whatever respect, then it's okay. Now, this is like wrong for a lot of reasons, okay? But the main reason I wanna bring out today is that the reason it's wrong that we can't have this logic of I can do what I want as long as I don't hurt anybody else is because you don't own your life. You are owned, okay? You are a steward even of your own life. We have limits that have been given to us. We have to steward those and respect those limits. The, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith on the Ten Commandments, and it's not the only one like this, but it's, it's one of the main catechisms it's like this uh, you should just read what is required of you and what is forbidden it is quite extraordinary it is very good okay 
And uh, I wanna read just a little bit of the longer catechism to you. And keep in mind this idea that you do not own yourself. And all of the ways that you would try to put that in a box and make it spiritual, whatever we all mean by that word, the, the commandment itself won't allow us to box this in. And the writers of the catechism are helpful here. So here it is. The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves and of others. Okay, that, that's pretty clear. Except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. Okay, the next thing. Forbidden the sixth commandment. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preserving life. Next, what is forbidden by the sixth commandment? Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations. Even your sleep is an issue of the sixth commandment. You see, you're a human being. Like, there's no life apart from a human being, right? Like, you were created as a human being, as a creature. You have limits. And we treat ourselves as though we don't have limits. Don't we? Don't you? I do. We tell ourselves, oh, it's only a season. Well, that might be true until it stops being true. And then we just keep doing what we're doing, and we know that we're mistreating ourselves and others. And here's the last of the list that's forbidden. Provoking words. Have you done that recently? I don't know. Oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. This is the sixth commandment. So we, are not, we don't own ourselves. That's why and we don't own other people. It's why that the sixth commandment would have us not kill people, Okay. Now, the second thing is this, is uh, we've been given honor. Honor has been bestowed on us. And really, the Bible seems to be the most clear that this is the reason why we must not kill people, uh, not unlawfully kill people, is because they're created in the image of God. All right? So it's an honor bestowed on us. God has given us this reality. And this is why human life is so precious and worthy of the utmost respect. And I mean all human life. In our own day-to-day interaction, the communities we live in, the societies around us, past and present, there are class and race distinctions that are value judgments on human beings. There are systems built around the value, the utility of a human being that are directly violating the Sixth Commandment right now, even in our communities. There were times when there was less punishment for killing a certain class of people or a certain race of people because they clearly weren't image bearers like us, whoever us was. This is wrong. James says that even cursing someone is a sin because they are, you're cursing the image of God. Uh, human life is so sacred that there's no, the only, the only equal is another human life. You, there's no price. You can't put a price on a human life. Genesis 9 says this, John 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. 
Now, when we talk about the image of God, it's not an easy concept to get across. It's not. Um, but I want to I wanna say these three things and then focus on one. One is to be creating the image of God in our whole constitution. That is to say, a human being, as I am, body, emotions, desires, all of these things. I am made in his image, which means that I, we are made to relate to God in a very unique way. We are designed, we're made to commune with him, to relate to him in a way that the rest of creation cannot, does not, and never will relate to him. So that's the first thing that we can communicate. Another thing we can communicate is that we rule over the rest of creation as stewards or vice regents with God. It's clear we've been given a mission and a commission to be sent out to minister with him and in a way that none of the rest of creation does or ever will. And the other thing is that there's this aspect of us, we talked about this in the second commandment, that being made in the image of God means we reflect things. Like we're, made, we're like a mirror meant to reflect God to, to others and to creation. Right? We're, we're like a mirror made to reflect him. Okay, And now the entire creation, in a sense, displays the glory of God. I mean, even the heavens declare. But we know what it's like if you talk about a reflection, the way, the way when we look at a piece of shiny metal, you can kind of see your reflection, but it's there. You know what it is. It's, it's reflecting you. Or when you look in, in, uh, in water, like in a pond or something, you see a reflection, but not like when you look into a mirror. It's, it's, a, it's a brilliant reflection. That's us. And you see, we were meant to face ourselves, to face our mirror towards God, to behold him like he's the sun. And you know that when, when you would point a mirror towards the sun, it would reflect almost blinding brilliance. God has made us that way to be able to do that. But, but this is what we do. We saw this in the second commandment especially. We actually take the mirror and we turn it towards darkness. Now we're still a mirror, but what, are, what do you reflect when you're pointed towards darkness? Darkness. But it's less, as we saw in the second commandment, it's less than human because we have this capacity. We've been given, this has been bestowed on us to reflect the glory of God, not your own glory, not your own fame, but the glory of God, which is, by the way, why you're so miserable and me because we continue to try to find happiness and joy and contentment and fulfillment by pointing the mirror towards darkness. We just take it and we point it towards darkness and we try to somehow get life and light. But that's not what the mirror is designed for. That's not what it means for us to image God. We are given this amazing honor. This dignity has been bestowed on us to reflect the glory of God as image bearers. So, Understanding this uh, will push us past uh, views of life that are valued based on utility. You know what that means, right? What that means is that a life is valued by what it does or what it does for me. Now, this right here is definitely where the conversation is around with abortion or physician-assisted suicide. I mean, it's somewhere in this realm, this utility of life, right, uh, how useful or productive are you or they to us in society? Okay, that, there's this utility thing. There's this Jewish um, philosopher, theologian, more philosopher, 
Um, and um, he writes about this uh, I-thou relationship. His last name is Boober, okay? And he talks about the reality that as persons, we're persons as we relate to other persons, okay? So the way he drew this out is that we are an I, we're a person, and we try to relate to other people sometimes as it's, like I, it, they're an object for my utility, right? It's I, it. But in order to truly experience life and relationship, we have to move into an I, thou relationship where they are actually another person. We know what this is like. Like think about um, a, a boss who treats you as a cog in, in a wheel, right? It's clearly I, it. Hey, uh, did you get that done yet? Uh, why, isn't, why don't I have that on my desk yet? Uh, okay, so did you do this? Did you do that? Why didn't you do this the way I wanted you to do it? That's I, it. Clearly utilitarian, like you, this is for utility. Or um, a, a physician who walks in, many of us have been, uh, whether it's having a child or being with a sick loved one or being the sick one, you walk in and, um, and we know what it's like for a healthcare professional, not just a doctor, anyone else to make that an I-it transaction, right? They come in and you are a symptom that's sitting there to be fixed, and don't really just, and as a matter of fact, I'd rather come in when you're sleeping because I don't want to talk to you because then it might begin to be an I, thou thing. And, and by the way, those of you in healthcare, I'm not saying that this is you or saying that when this happens to you that you are a monster, okay? It happens to me whenever I uh, am riding, uh, when I'm somewhere on a trip and I Uber somewhere, that's like a, ta- a taxi for those of you who don't know. Um, it's very cool. You can download an app. There's another one called Lyft. It's quite, it's quite fun. You can actually watch how far away the car is. When I sit in the car, am I going to have an I-thou relationship with that person or an I-it relationship? They are functionally a machine driving me to a place that I want to go. And therefore, there is some utility and this is great. You see, all of this All of this matters to the sixth commandment. C.S. Lewis famously said in his book, The Weight of Glory, that there are no ordinary people. He says, you have never met a mere mortal. The people we see every day, even the ones that we give little regard to, will live forever, either in glory or in judgment. So you see, the, the point of the sixth commandment is not to not give your neighbor the worst, It's actually to give them your best. The point is life, not death, right? So again, like basketball, the point of the game is not to keep the ball in bounds. The point of the game is to put the ball in the basket. The point of the Christian life, the point of the sixth commandment is not not to kill people or not to outburst in fits of anger and rage. It's to pursue them in love. So that's the second thing I wanna draw out from this today. And this is the last thing, the pursuit of love. Yes, the protection of life, that's like the bounds. But inside the bounds, there's all types of beauty that God would have his people engage in to pursue love. Now, in order to understand the commandments fully, uh, we have to look to the entirety of the scriptures, which is why we have Jesus's words here this morning too. And when we look at the whole of scripture, we see that God's commandments are to penetrate the human heart, to get to the root 
of what breaking the commandment would be. Next week, we're gonna talk about adultery. So of course, we're gonna talk about the root of what would even lead us to be the types of people that commit adultery. And we all do it. And so in this case, also the sixth commandment is meant to penetrate our heart to get to the root of all murder, which as we see in the Bible is envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness, all types of things like that. And when we understand that God forbids these things, we understand the positive side of the command then is not indifference, it's love. It's not just generally loving, it's pursuing love of the person in your life. Not to love humanity, but to love the neighbor, your neighbor, right across from you that God has put in your path. It's to be patient and peace-loving and gentle and merciful and friendly toward them and to protect them from harm as much as possible and to do good, Jesus says, even to your enemies. And I've been convicted as of late, I don't even treat my neighbors and sometimes my kids and my wife like Jesus tells me to treat my enemies. To pray for them, to pray for their good, genuinely from the heart. Martin Luther says that this commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when they fail to do good to their neighbor, or though when they have the opportunity, they fail to prevent, protect, and save them from suffering bodily harm or injury. So you see, this is a quite broad commandment, is it not? And in, some commentators will say that from its own perspective, all of ethics can be found right here in the sixth commandment because the value of sixth commandment is not death, it's ultimately life. One way that people have made a principle out of the sixth commandment is by the doctrine of carefulness. That's a good one, isn't it? The doctrine of carefulness. I'd never heard of the doctrine of carefulness until I started studying for the Ten Commandments. It's in all types of places that people talk about it. And the principle is that we must guard uh, against the possibility that someone might be killed or harmed. Right? To be full of care. To be thoughtful. To be careful. Not scared. Not risk averse. Right? There's always risk. Always, always, always. Got in your car, you drove here. That's not the point. The point is, for example, um, be, well, let's start here. Because human life is so valuable, you would want to take care of it, right? It's the image bearer. It's owned by God, and you want to take care of it. So in the Old Testament, you know, uh, and in different cultures, lots of business in a household is conducted, uh, and life is lived on the roof of a house. And so in the Old Testament law, uh, you had to put a guardrail up. And if someone fell because you didn't have a guardrail or something like that, they would be held accountable for killing you, right? I mean, so the way that translates today is, I mean, one of the reasons we, have, we should have fences around our swimming pools with the gates shut isn't so that you won't get sued if someone accidentally falls in there. It's because you realize that it is very possible that someone unattended, like a child, might fall in the pool and die, Sixth commandment would have us value that. Okay, it's not just because you don't want to get sued, right? Health safety laws, same thing. This would be part of this idea, this principle of the doctrine of carefulness. Now here I'm about to meddle, okay? When you text and drive, I would say in almost every instance that I can think of, and I'm very small, 
person, small mind. So put that, put that out there. But in almost every instance I can think of, tell me how texting and driving isn't a violation of the sixth commandment. I mean, are you not unnecessarily putting yourself in danger? And the person driving across from you, they do this. And here's the thing, though. You, you, you're a good driver, right? That's what you told yourself. I'm a good driver. I can look down. I can look away. Listen, we know that's not true. We know that's not true because multiple times in your life, you found yourself on the other side of the road or really close, and you thought, oh, good thing I didn't. There was no car there. But your life is so important. You'll put other people in danger. My podcast is so important. I'll put other people in danger. I'll look at my phone. God delights in life. That's why that matters. God delights in life. And sin is so serious because it pervades life and threatens to take it. And ever since the fall, life and death have been linked together. Even in the law of Moses, the person who committed manslaughter, someone had to be held accountable. Something had to happen. There had to be some retribution. Now, it wasn't the same justice as someone who intentionally killed someone. But I found this so interesting. In, in the case of an accidental killing, if you're with us in um, CBR, you know, you, we've read this. There's, there are uh, cities of refuge that are set up in case someone accidentally kills someone. But you know, when, when do they get to go back? When do they get to go back to their, their home where they live? They, when do they get to leave the city of refuge? I, I thought maybe, maybe it's when the, the family dies because in the law of Moses, if you kill someone, their family gets to kill you. That's the way the law was. Just like now, we're like, oh, the government can take care of it. Well, back then, the family killed you, okay? Now, I thought, well, maybe it's to protect them from the family, so they gotta wait till that family dies before they can go back, right? No, that's not what it says. What it says is they have to wait till someone dies, though, because remember what Genesis 9 says. The, the only thing that can pay for a life taken is another life. So when do they get to go back? They get to go back when the high priest dies. And what is it? Why, what, what does the high priest do? Well, the high priest is to represent God and to mediate between God and the people. You see where this is going? You see, as that representative, the high priest, when he died, he served as a substitute in the place of the person who accidentally killed the other person. There was a substitute. That's the way this had to happen because for death and everything else that breaks the sixth commandment, a life is required. Every sin we commit against another person, a life is required. And, and as the story unfolds, we see that this is a foreshadowing of Jesus as a substitute. You see, the beauty of salvation is that death, God values life so much that death is swallowed up in death of Christ for the purpose of life. So you see, as you go out here, the, the, the point of the sixth commandment or any of the commandments is not moralism. It's life. It's not not killing people. It's loving people. And this is what we get to do because why? We've not been killed We've been loved. 
We've not been shunned and marginalized. We've been pursued and valued and loved. And this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a child of God. And this is where we get to rest this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you grateful that you value life. There's no wonder we value life. There's no wonder we hate death. It's because we've been made in your image. We've been put into a world where life is clearly more valuable than death. We praise you, we thank you, Jesus, that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross for us. The joy of bringing your children into communion with you and the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's the source of life. We're thankful for how you continue to pursue us. We're thankful for how you have not left us to our own devices, but you have given us each other. You've given us the Holy Spirit and you've given us your word. So as we're about to go to your table, we ask now as we reflect that you would warm our hearts to dine with you, to commune with you, to feast upon you. In Jesus' name.